Money FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings. International News Review. We are back with the International News Review and the ever-present, effervescent Steve Oaken joining us from the great state of California. How you doing, my friend? Doing great on the other side of the Pacific. Glad to be uh, back in the U.S. getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving next week. Let's get right into it. we got a lot to talk about. APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Grouping, has been meeting this past week in San Francisco Thousands and thousands of people, leaders from all over the place. Talk to us. Uh, take us through kind of a high-level overview of what happened and and was it was it useful? Well, a- a- APEC stands for the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation, so it's made up of 21 economies. And of course, we don't use the word country since Taiwan is one of those 21 I stand, uh, economies. I stand corrected. Uh, yep. Yes. So the 21 come together annually for a leaders meeting that also is accompanied by a CEO summit. So it's it's not a governmental organization per se. No treaties are signed, but it's incredibly important because every year it gives the opportunity for the government officials to meet collectively, but also bilaterally. And it also gives a chance for the government officials to meet with the uh, business leaders, and it also gives a chance for subgroups to actually sign things that do take effect other than what happens at APEC. So incredibly important, even though not an official uh, organization, and a lot came out of APEC this year, of course, the most important being the leaders meeting between uh, the United States and China. Well, we'll get to that shortly. But yes, the APEC summit was going to look at promoting trade, we know that, protecting supply chains, and fighting the climate crisis. Those were the key issues on the menu. How far did they get with any of them, would you say? Well, it doesn't accomplish anything concrete. They issue declarations that are a lot of, you know, shalls and, and, and will try type of thing, nothing that, that is a must or a have to do. But you had, you know, IPEF get signed here, which has a clean economy um, part of the agreement. So that was very important. You had China and the U.S. agreeing to do certain things on the, on the climate. So that was very important. So it was a big week. And it's, it's very good. Remember, the U.S. came in and hosted this. There was actually no host for this year. They decided to come in and host it. And it's, it's a very good thing they did. And it was a productive week. Okay, let's look at the specifics then. The key issue, U.S. President Joe Biden met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Some positives was the fact they actually met. Your dear friend Mr. Biden called him a dictator, which made Anthony Blinken visibly wince. How did you see their meeting, Steve? Uh, well, the, the meeting itself and the fact that it happened mm. was incredibly important. It's only the second time, you know, in the three years Joe Biden's been president uh, that they've had the chance to meet in person. And leaders meetings require, especially between the U.S. and China, especially now, require intense diplomacy leading up to them. So the, the table was, was set that this would be a well-orchestrated meeting, um, that they would come out with at least a couple of concrete deliverables that they could point to. It was not a reset of the relationship. A lot of tensions remain in in the U.S.-China relationship. But now at least there's a floor under the relationship. And what was interesting, look, you know, Xi Jinping asked the the question, you know, are the United States China, uh, are China and the United, United States partners or rivals? 
Um, after this meeting, we could say both, although that is not how the Chinese want that answer to be. They want it to be partners. Mm. But the U.S. says it's got to be both. And so long way to go, but at least we have a floor under the relationship right now. And I think that's the key, isn't it, Steve? You want to be half full on this. I've seen all the think pieces saying, you know, substantial discussions on Taiwan, but no real progress, military talks, but no real progress. But the fact that they're meeting and the fact that I think it was Biden who said he and I have agreed that we will pick up the phone at any time and speak directly on any issue in the current precarious geopolitical climate, that's got to be a step forward, surely. Exactly. I mean, look, no one expected much to come out of this meeting, and I I think those expectations were met. But they agreed on certain things. As you mentioned, Neil, they reestablished military communications after they were cut off more than a year ago. Very important for the U.S. that they strengthen cooperation on on counter-narcotics as a way to curb the fentanyl crisis here in the United States. You know, Secretary Kerry, who's the special envoy for climate, the special presidential envoy for climate, you know, has kicked off a new round of talks on climate change. So positives there. I'm not saying the relationship is positive, but at least there were positives coming out of this meeting. But look, there are deep divisions on key bilateral issues between the U.S. uh, and and China, Uh, Taiwan um, being one of those, the U.S. putting restrictions on investment in trade with China being another one, and none of those were resolved. Can't move on, Steve, without mentioning your favorite, our favorite, black and white envoys. I love the fact that Xi Jinping hinted at a dinner the pandas. <laughs> he may bring back the pandas to soften relations. Uh, Did you hear this one, Steve? Did I hear it? We've been talking about this for over a month. We've been saying on this very program Indeed. that panda diplomacy is critical and is a huge plus for China. Apparently, I don't know, Neil and Glenn, Xi Jinping happens to agree with us. <laughs> what can I say? I mean, we lead the way on geopolitical relations. Uh, but look, hey, there was a more serious side uh, in part of these discussions, and that was companies were complaining that they might have to pay thousands of dollars to join the welcome dinner hosted by uh, Xi Jinping and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, so it was a pay-to-play kind of um, engagement opportunity uh, what, what do we know about that? Does that often happen at these types of meetings? Uh, we know that if you want to get a photograph with the president or whatever at some of these events, you've got to pay thousands of dollars to get a handshake and a photo. Um, but what was happening with this dinner and, and people being charged for it? Okay, your boy, you're going to – all right, I'm, I'm biased on this one, so you're going to set me off a little bit, Glenn. Um, look, I'm a member or have been a member and, and a very active with the three groups that hosted this dinner. And it's okay. the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, uh, the U.S.-China Business Council, um, and the U.S. Chamber. Um, and – Look, these dinners are important because it gives a chance for, for the leader of China to talk directly to the business community. It gives the business community a chance to hear what message he's going to deliver directly. Second, these dinners are really expensive to put on. And in fact, you know, reading, reading reports, the committees had to fly in translators because all the translators had been booked for this event, they had to bring in a, a copious amount of security and staff. And so they're probably going to lose money on, on this dinner, even though tickets were very expensive. Some of them, I think, getting a seat at the head table was like 40000 U.S. dollars 
dollars, but they're going to lose money on this. The people who were really criticizing this was the 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 you know the members of Congress. The people without said, any money. Well, <laughs> who weren't invited. The people who control the money. They, they they're very good at spending money. The people spending other people's money. They yeah. should say. But they were really critical yeah. uh, of 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 this and. Look, these dinners are important. They, this one in particular was extraordinarily expensive to put on, and it was really important to hear directly from C. I will tell you that I think overall the business community wasn't thrilled with the message that he delivered because he didn't talk about the opening up in China that is really needed and the rule of law that is really needed. But now with congressional committees going to the, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and the U.S.-China Business Council demanding all of their books and demanding to, wanting to know who attended. I mean, it, it really shows um, how difficult it is to do business in China as, as, as a U.S. company with the hawkishness mm. of, of some of those in government. Now, moving ahead, Steve, I did read your think piece on the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity, a mouthful in itself, IPEF, this loose trade pack between the U.S. and like-minded democracies in Australia and South Korea, which has been a key component of discussions this week. However, how binding is it, and how much does it actually mean? Well, I never thought, Neil, that you'd call anything I wrote a think piece, so thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's a Saturday morning. It's a sunny day. I'm in a good mood. Why not? Never has Steve Oaken been accused of being a thinker. Wait a minute. No. We know you're a deep so, thinker. Last week, I'm a bedwetter, and yet I'm such a bigger person, a bigger person, I call him a deep thinker. Ish. What? Deep thing? No, you didn't say deep thing. You said think piece. But yeah, I got, I got, I got carried away. I'll take, I'll take that back. I'll take that back. All right, IPEF. What's it worth? Is it a waste of time or not? Come on. Okay, so so IPEF is the only game in town. And I, I may think wow. there, there has been so much criticism of IPEF because it's not the TPP or the CPTPP, which are binding trade agreements. It does not offer any market access to the United States for, for, for companies to, for countries to incentivize them to join. And people are complaining that the entire trade pillar, which is, which is, there are four pillars. Pillar one is the trade pillar. The U.S. pulled out of that, at least for now, entirely, because the politics behind trade here are so bad. And so mm. it's really getting, getting, you know, bashed as a nothing burger, and this is but well, and to be fair, wrong. you they, yourself have said that over the years, you know, the last couple of years, you have been in that one of those very strong critic positions. I've heard you say things, right? Well, I think the United States needs to be in CPTPP. The United sure. States needs to be signing up for those types of trades agreements. But that doesn't mean you take nothing. The headline of my, you know, of my commentary was that IPEF is the only game in town, and you don't walk away from it. And there are things in there that will at least get the business community working with governments in the region on things that are needed, like the supply chain resilience, mm -hmm. like, you know, the, the green, uh, the, the clean energy pillar and, and the green transition, like um, having binding provisions when it comes to anti-corruption in the region. So look, it's better than nothing. It's, it's all that we have. And so the business community needs to get behind this where they can. And that doesn't mean you stop pushing and it doesn't mean you stop saying, well, trade doesn't matter anymore and we don't need 
you know, market access and bilateral agreements. But this is this we've got to start working. Steve, on. prior to this week, the challenge was there wasn't enough structure around IPEF. There weren't enough qualifiable, quantifiable goals, targets, you know, what equals a win or or strong things. So has any of that demonstrably changed in this past week? Has anything actually been done? Let's put it that way. Yes. And look, what you have now is a ministerial council that is going of the 14 countries that is going to meet annually. That was just announced. You have working groups that are going to be meeting to implement the three pillars that remain in IPEF. Now, there's there's not four that have been been agreed to. There's just the three. But at least you have some structure around it. You don't again. Ideally, you would like to see a secretariat, like you have a secretariat for the WTO or you have a secretariat for APEC, um, but you at least have councils that are going to work together. You have commitments from the Singapore government to host um, the first clean energy session in the first half of 2024. So they are putting some structure there. They are giving what we need to do now, and, and this has been so far a G to G, right, government to government, this has got to move to G to B, government to business, because it's business that is going to enable the countries who've signed up to IPEF to get what they want out of it, which is one, FDI, right, foreign direct investment, into their countries, and to be able to put structures in place so that when companies naturally diversify out of China or de-risk out of China, they'll be prepared to get that more so than other countries who aren't in IPEF. So it gives an incentive for countries to join. Okay, well, moving ahead, Steve, we've talked about him before. He polarized domestic politics like no politician in recent years. He's a right-wing politician. Everybody wrote him off. Nobody said he could return to power. Not Donald Trump, Lord David Cameron. Where did this come from, Steve? Can, can I just say what's old is new again? This is the theme yep. of this yep. show today. Yes. Lord Cameron is back. You know, where did he come from? Where did the Speaker of the House in the United States come from? And they, they came from the both place. They both came from the same place. Desperation, right? <laughs> this is, they, they, they came from the same place. And I, you, look, Neil, you, look, the UK and, and the British government is, is, is your account. Why, I would say, would you bring back the person who put forth Brexit, which is the biggest disaster, right? Facing the UK. This is the guy that, that your current Prime Minister Sunak is going to bring to to get him a win in the next election. How is it anything other than desperation? Yeah, not my government, I hasten to add. But uh, no, you're absolutely right, Steve. Uh, What's old is new, as Glenn says. Uh, Just for a bit of clarity, he didn't orchestrate Brexit. He was actually a Remainer, but he thought that the referendum would actually settle internal domestic issues within the Conservative Party. It didn't. As you correctly said, the British economy has had seven years of struggle ever since, and they've brought back the man to fix the thing that he broke that he in broke. the first place. <laughs> That's uh, what I said. He's the genius who brought us Brexit. I know he was against it, but he's the one who put it up for the vote. Absolutely. But I mean, this... This is your brilliant politician who's going to save your government? Not my brilliant politician, I hasten to add. He is respected on the international stage as a diplomat, being a former prime minister. And I have to say for Singaporean listeners, this hasn't happened in 50, 60 years. Firstly, mm. he doesn't have an elected seat. Mm. He's not a sitting member of parliament. 
He has no constituency. That's never happened in our lifetimes. So they've had to rush Wait, through. your lifetime or my lifetime? I would think both. <laughs> I, I know there was uh, political scholars. There was Lord Douglas Home, I think, if I've got the name right. And that was the 50s or 60s. But right. anyway, so they've had to rush through his lordship, like Lord Vader. So he's become a lord overnight. He can't even sit, Steve, in the House of Commons. So he's not accountable when they do their back and forth in mm. Parliament every day. Mm. I mean, in terms of accountability, Steve, what do you make of that? There's a quote from The Economist, right? In British politics, the appearance of competence is more important than the evidence of it, right? Aesthetics mm. trump achievement, and that the Cameron is the prime example of that. And so I don't, and, and he is also probably one of the most pro-China yes. members or former members of, of the parliament, as he's not, or I guess he's a current member again, but, and that you've had. So how is he the right, what is Sunak thinking in terms of appointing him that he thinks he's going to help him hold on to power in the next election? None of this, Neil, makes a lot of sense. But there is echoes of the U.S. situation mm-hmm. here. As you know, the British situation has lurched to the right. Populism is at an all-time high. But the question is, and this, uh, this is goes to your point that we were talking about last week. How big is this actual populist sector? Are we overplaying it in the media? Because Rishi Sunak is of the opinion that perhaps the media is overplaying this right-wing populism, and therefore he's made a conscious effort to shift back to the centre, which is not too dissimilar to what you've been saying about the US scene, which is we're overplaying the popularity or the appeal mm, of mm. Trump's populism. Would you say that was fair? Yeah, and I mean, look what's happening now in the U.S., right? So, the, the, you know, we had a Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who lost his position because he realized he had to work with Democrats to keep the government open. So he, he passed, a, 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 you know, he, he got a bill through that kept the government open with Democratic votes, and then he got voted out by the right wing of the Republican Party, saying we have to stick to our principles, we have to be right wing. And so then they elect somebody as Speaker of the House from their side of, of the political spectrum. And what does he do? The same exact thing that McCarthy did. Right? He worked with the Democrats to keep the government open because you can't can't govern to the right, and you can't govern to the left either. You have to govern as, as a moderate. And the question is, can you know Sunak and, and the Conservative Party pivot to the middle? Um, and in the U.S., we see that Trump is not trying to pivot to the middle, except maybe on abortion. And will people, you know, fall for that uh, in either side of the uh, of the Atlantic? Uh, and final word, I've hmm. got to ask Steve. You're in California. Have you managed to make the state of California Formula One an absolute laughing stock? Actually, no, Las Vegas is not in California. Las Vegas, yeah, 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 Las Vegas. Has that made news over there, Steve? That has made some news. The fact that uh, the manhole covers are causing damage because now it not only happens to our cars here, it happens to F1 cars. So it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's equal, equal, equal. But, boy, to think that they couldn't pull that one off. Oh, crazy. Yeah. All right, Steve. Hey, thanks a lot. You will not be with us next week. You'll be enjoying Thanksgiving with your lovely wife and boys. But uh, we will see you in a, a couple of two, three weeks' time. See you in two weeks back in Singapore. All Happy right. Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanks, Steve. Talk to you soon. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.